Rhonda Burchard. I partner with Marianne, like she said, in teaching at the river, and it's wonderful to be with you. I love studying the Bible because studying the Bible has changed my life. The reason it has changed my life it is, is that it has changed my view of God. And when you change your view of God, it changes how you see yourself. And that, in turn, has the potential to change your life as it has mine. And so I teach God's word with the hope that you, too, will find studying the Bible is life-changing. But it is a choice. It's always a choice whether or not you are going to apply God's word to your life. Did you hear the words or read the words on the screen during that song? When you feel like giving up, when you feel like giving in. That is what we are going to talk about today. What do you do when you feel like giving up? What do you do when you feel like giving up? Because I'm guessing there might be someone today considering giving up. Because that is the reality. The enemy of our souls wants us to give up on God, on each other, on the church, on our families, on our calling. And so that is the key question we're going to address tonight. What do you do when you feel like giving up? Now, God, in his great wisdom, knew as believers we would feel like giving up. He is not surprised. He knew this road, this human journey, would be difficult. And so he inspired James to write the words in this week's study. He knew and knows that you and I 
would feel like giving up. So let's jump into today's passage, James 1, 1 through 8. Let's start with verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Marianne talked about this verse last week. Right off the bat, James introduces himself. Remember, James is the brother of Jesus. So in this introduction, he could have easily played the brother card. But he doesn't. Instead, he describes himself as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't humility beautiful? Humility is a trait not so valued in American eyes, but it is in God's eyes. Psalm 25, 9 says, He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. Being humble is being dependent on God. We have a trustworthy teacher in James. Verse 1 continues, To the twelve tribes in the dispersion. Remember, all of the Bible is one grand story. So if you were with us in the river last year as we studied Genesis, the first book of the Bible, you remember we learned about Jacob and his 12 sons, which grew into the 12 tribes of Israel. And here we are near the end of the Bible in the book of James, still talking about the 12 tribes because the Bible is one grand story. The phrase 12 tribes is another way to refer to God's people. James is writing to God's people, the Jewish Christians, who have been dispersed or scattered outside of Jerusalem. They are being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. The book of James is written to people experiencing so much persecution for their belief in Jesus that they have had to leave their homes. They have been scattered to other nations. James is writing to believers under attack for following Christ. This brings us to verses 2 through 8. Now, my guess is that some of you, maybe many of you, have heard these verses before. Perhaps you've even quoted these verses before. Maybe you even have a t-shirt that has these verses on them. And because they are well known, I'd like for us to read verses 2 through 8 out loud together. Okay? Just a heads up, in verse 2, some versions say brothers and some say brothers and sisters. It's an interpretive decision. ESV says brothers, NIV says brothers and sisters. Both are considered accurate. We are going to read the NIV to include the sisters. So let's read verses 2 through 8 on the screen together. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all, without finding fault, and it will be given to you. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. 
that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. So good. Thank you for that. When you look at this passage, you see that it begins with a given. Whenever you face trials. Please note it does not say if you face trials. It does not to say if you happen to face trials, if perchance you meet trials. For James and the recipients of his letter, they are in the face of trials. This is not just a possibility. This is not a maybe. James is saying this to his original audience and to us too. We will face trials over and over again. It's not if, it's when. The truth is, as believers, we will face trials. As believers, we will face trials. I am so sorry if I'm the first one to tell you this. Oh, but in your heart, you probably already knew. You know this because you have already faced trials and troubles. Or maybe you are in the midst of them right now. Are you in the midst of trials right now? Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble. This is one of the great things about the Bible. The Bible tells us how it really is. It is the truth. As believers and even beyond that, as humans, we will face trials. We should expect them. That is the human story. As some of you know, I just started a position as a hospital chaplain. Part of my job is that I get called to the emergency department when a trauma patient is brought in. For many, their bodies are so broken. But it's not just the body that's broken. Their spirits are broken. And then in comes the family, and their emotions are broken. And then the stories start coming out, and their relationships are so broken. I remember my very first time in the emergency department a couple of weeks ago, and I was thinking, I am looking at the brokenness of humanity. We live in a broken world. James tells us, in this life you will face trials. He's not being negative. He's telling us the truth, the reality of our situation. And really, that's the kindness of God to acknowledge the truth of our story. But somehow when trials come, we are always surprised. We're always caught off guard, aren't we? You know, we could think about it the other way. What if we saw the smooth parts of life as surprises? The smooth parts of life as the gifts? Perhaps the blessings should be what catch us unaware. Would we appreciate the blessings more if we expected the trials and were surprised by the blessings? I don't know. Just a thought. Sometimes, though, I think we have it backwards. I think we have come to expect the blessings and are surprised by the trials. But James tells us as believers, we will face trials. So how are we coming upon these trials? The ESV says, meet trials. The NIV says, face trials. But here's where it gets interesting. The Net Bible says, when we fall into trials. 
When I dug a little bit deeper into a word study, I found that we can be encircled by trials, and we can even be caught in trials of our own making, because another use of this word is to be caught in your own snare. So when we put all of that together, we can see that a trial can be something we face, something we meet, something we fall into, something we trip over, or something we create on our own. A trial can be something we have no control over or something we actually had a hand in creating. Don't raise your hand, but anybody here ever create your own mess? (laughs) Your own trial? I like how the message translates James 1-2. When tests and challenges come at you from all sides. From all sides. Some of the messes in your life blindsided you, and some of the messes in your life you created yourself. The interesting thing is that our response should be the same. James says, as a believer, you will face trials. Verse 3 gives us further description of a trial as the testing of your faith. So if it is a test, then it would seem that when we face the trials, we are left with a choice. It is a test after all. So how are we going to respond? How are we going to respond to these tests? We've been hearing about the college admissions scandal in the news. One of the scams was that the parents could pay to have the answers of their son or daughter's college entrance exams corrected so that the answers would be right, they would receive a higher score, getting them into a better college. But people are going to jail because that's not right. In real life, we have to answer our own tests. That's what James is telling us. When we face trials, we have to answer our own test. No one else can respond for us. We have to respond. So how are we going to respond? because we do have a choice. The truth is, as a believer, we have a choice as to how we respond to trials. As a believer, we have a choice as to how we respond to trials. Now stay with me, because this is where some believers get upset. Because a response is a choice, and to make a good choice requires a decision. And I don't know about you, but for me, sometimes it actually takes work to make the right choice. But some believers get upset with James because they say, we don't believe in work, we believe in grace. Now this is where you need to hear me very clearly. We have to hold two ideas in our hands at the same time. The first is this. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no work here. This is repeating what Marianne said last week. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. As Christians, this is what we believe. Grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and... And there is an and after salvation. This is what James is teaching us. 
Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, and after salvation, effort is expected. After salvation, effort is expected. Because the truth is, at salvation, God wants us as we are, but he doesn't want us to stay as we are. At salvation, God wants us as we are, but he doesn't want us to stay as we are. Wait a minute, Rhonda, where do you see this? Right here in verse 4. So that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. That is the goal. Mature and complete, not lacking anything. That is not where we start at salvation. We start just where we are, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Salvation is just the wonderful beginning of our faith story. God wants us to grow in our faith, and growth in our faith requires effort. Effort after salvation is not earning your salvation. Hear me clearly. There is nothing we can do to earn salvation. Nothing we can do to earn salvation. But James is telling us we got to step it up after salvation. Because after salvation, living the Christian life requires effort and intentionality. Where do we see that? We see that in this word right here in verses 3 and 4. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. We know that living the Christian life requires effort because of the word perseverance. Now, as Americans, we used to be known for our work ethic. We used to be known as hard workers. Think of the settlers, the pioneers. For goodness sake, we live in the state of Oregon. We are at the end of the Oregon Trail. Our state was founded by people who endured trial after trial after trial in order to make a life for themselves in this gorgeous place we call home. But not so much anymore. As Americans in 2019, we want a life of ease. Do you know that cereal sales in the United States are declining? It's true. Four years ago, in response to declining cereal sales, market researchers went looking for answers as to why younger people were opting out of the convenience food that had fed their parents and grandparents. And according to the New York Times, researchers found the reason. Almost 40% of those surveyed said cereal was an inconvenient breakfast choice because they had to clean up after eating it. 40%! You had to clean up after eating it. This is, we're talking about cereal here. But I think it points to a belief we have in our current culture. We should be able to live an unbothered life. Writer Jen Pollock Michael says, As our lives in the developed world get easier, we are increasingly formed by the desire for ease. 
All of the cautions we raise about technology, its distractions and temptation, its loneliness and superficiality, the promise of unencumbered living is perhaps the most insidious danger and also the one we talk about the least. We have become a culture that wants life to be easy. I think it is so funny that we use Grubhub to deliver fast food. (laughs) Driving across town to get fast food is now too much of a burden. We want a life of ease. We actually need to intensely engage. So let's go back to our question from the beginning. What do you do when you feel like giving up? According to James, the answer is persevere. Another way to say it is don't give up. Perseverance is sustained effort over time. Perseverance is intentional. Perseverance does not occur by accident. You don't just happen to persevere. It is a choice. So let me ask you, where are you tempted to give up in your life? Where are you tempted to give in? On God? On your marriage? On the church? In your family? In your calling? In life? My guess is, if you are tempted to give up, you are in a place in your life that is not easy. Remember, the world is repeatedly telling us we deserve a life of ease, and I think some of us are buying into it. God designed a system of working for six days and resting the seventh day, but our culture is telling us every day should be an easy day. James tells us perseverance is what leads us to becoming mature and complete in our faith. I want you to turn to your neighbor right now, and I want you to say, don't give up. (laughs) All right, let's dive in on the word persevere. The word persevere is used over 50 times in the New Testament. Persevere can also be translated as endure or patient in, as in be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. The word patient in Romans 12.12 could also be persevere. So that gives you an idea of the richer meaning of the word. Five different authors use the word persevere in the New Testament. James, Peter, the Apostle Paul, the author of Hebrews, and the Apostle John. And for good measure, in the Gospels, Jesus also uses the word. For example, in Luke 8.15, But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word, retain it, and by persevering, produce a crop. James is in good company and not alone in telling us to persevere. So I ask you again, where are you tempted to give up? Don't give up. Just keep doing what God has called you to do. Persevere. Be a light for the Lord where you are. 
you may say, well, what I'm doing really isn't that hard compared to the people that James was writing to. We know the first recipients of James' letter were being persecuted. Stephen was the first martyr of the Christian faith, giving up his life for the cause of Christ. But is perseverance only required for matters of life and death? Can it still be difficult to keep the faith when we are not under physical persecution? Let's look at another example from the writings of Paul, where he uses the word. As servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way in great endurance. That's the other word you can use for um, perseverance. Endurance in troubles, hardships, and distresses, in beatings, imprisonments, and riots, in hard work, sleepless nights, and hunger. There's our word again. This list of difficulties faced by Paul includes the physical persecutions of beatings, imprisonment, and hunger. But notice the list also includes the not-so-shocking sleepless nights and hard work as requiring perseverance or endurance. Anybody here ever have to persevere through hard work or sleepless nights? As I mentioned, I just started a new job. New jobs require lots of new learnings as a new employee, but the new hours have created ripple effects in the rest of my life. My husband has had to take on new responsibilities, and my children are seeing me less. On top of that, our youngest, who has struggled from very early on with anxiety, is in the middle of a medicine trial. These medicines have caused her to be wide awake in the middle of the night, feeling crazed. You have no idea how much it means to me that Paul also suffered from sleepless nights. (laughs) But seriously, those crazy middle-of-the-night times with my daughter, combined with the intensities of my new job and the impact I know my husband is feeling, have made me ask, should I quit my new role? Because this is really hard. But then I replay the steps that I've taken, the doors the Lord has opened. You see, perseverance isn't only for the life-threatening. It seems we need perseverance to endure the everyday difficulties. Our goal as believers is great endurance in troubles, hardships, and distress. Whether these troubles and hardships and distresses are physical, emotional, life-threatening, or not, they require perseverance. Perseverance is an intentional act. If a person is persevering, it is not a casual decision. Perseverance implies effort and choice. And by the way, if God is calling you to something it most likely will not be easy. Ease is the enemy's calling. So how are we to persevere? According to James, there are two things we can do to persevere when we experience trials. These are two active ways, two choices believers can make to help them persevere through trials. The first is, number one, count it joy or consider it joy. James tells us, count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of various kinds. I'm going to tell you the truth. This is not easy. This is difficult. 
Is James telling me that I should consider it pure joy when my life is a mess? When my life feels like a disaster? Really? Are you kidding me? Pure joy? How can anyone do this? When we think about all the possible trials we can face, physical trials, emotional trials, relational trials, when people are life-flighted or brought by ambulance into the emergency department and I meet them there, is that to be considered joy? I don't know if you can tell or not, but I'm not the kind of person who likes pat answers. Are these verses a pat answer to the world's troubles? These are the kinds of questions that I bring to my Bible study. And the good news is that is exactly what God wants us to do. He wants us to ask the hard questions. James also is beginning with the hard questions. He is writing to people who are suffering. He is writing to people who have seen their friend, Stephen, killed for his faith. This is not a pat answer because James himself is living in persecution. So then we need to ask ourselves, do we really understand these words? Do we understand what he is saying? Sometimes we think we're understanding, but we're really not because we're not using the words the same way. Let me give you an example. If I ask my 13-year-old daughter to please do the dishes, and I come home and the dishes are still dirty, I'll say, honey, why don't you do the dishes? And she might say, I did. I rinsed them and put them in the dishwasher. And I reply, but you didn't start the dishwasher. You did great with steps one and two, but by doing the dishes, you need to start the dishwasher. Has this conversation ever taken place in any of your homes? (laughs) In order for understanding, our definitions need to be the same. The same thing might be happening in this passage. Because this is a familiar passage, we might think we all understand the same thing. But there's a key word through this that I think we think we know, but actually it means something else. That word is joy. What is joy? Now, I decided to go where many of us go when we need to learn something. So I asked Siri. A lot of us do this. We trust Siri. So I asked her, what is the definition of joy? And this is what she told me. Joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. We all enjoy great pleasure and happiness. So let's plug Siri's definition into our verse. Count it all great pleasure and happiness, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. Does that seem right? I wouldn't say that trials bring great pleasure. Google's definition of joy was the same as Siri's, so that doesn't help. I went to a dictionary website and found that joy is defined as the emotion evoked by success or good fortune. So let's plug that definition into our verse. Count it all success or good fortune, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of various kinds. It doesn't feel right either, does it? A psychology website defined joy as when you make peace with who you are, why you are, and how you are. According to psychology, joy is all about you. These definitions of joy are not helping us. 
In the Bible, joy is the fruit of the Spirit. And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. It is not something that comes about because of who you are. Joy in the Bible is related to God. If we're going to put a passage of scripture on t-shirts, we better understand what is meant by joy. Because in the Bible, joy is connected to God. You may have noticed something in your Bible study workbook. Each week has a section for notes. So if you'd like, go ahead and turn to page 16 in your workbook. And you'll find the section for this week's notes. I'm about to share with you the biblical definition of joy in suffering. And if you wanted to, this is where you could write it. Because I believe this definition of joy could change your view of God and your view of the trial you are facing. So here it is. Joy in suffering is in anticipation of what God is going to do. Joy in suffering is in anticipation of what God is going to do. That definition is from Dallas Willard, former philosophy professor at USC and beloved Christian thinker. This is important because often when we read the word joy in the Bible, we're thinking of series definition or psychology's definition. And if we're thinking of the world's definition of joy when we face trials, we are going to be frustrated and, quite frankly, not very joyful. We need to think in a biblical way. Joy is a condition of our soul because of God, not because of ourselves, not because we have decided we're going to be more joyful. Rather, our focus should be on the Lord and what he is going to do. It is not a feeling. We really need to know this. Otherwise, we would be trying to cultivate a feeling, trying to drum up joy. Joy is confidence in who God is and what he is going to do. Here are some other examples. In John 15, 11, Jesus said, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Hebrews 12, 2, talking about Jesus, said, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And this is why Paul can be sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Biblical joy can be consistent with pain. It can be consistent with suffering. It can be consistent with trials. This is what James is talking about. He isn't talking about the world's definition of joy, of success, of good fortune, or pleasure. Let's try our definition of joy into James 1-2. Consider what God is going to do, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now it makes sense, doesn't it? We have the right definition for joy. Notice that it says, consider it joy. This means there's a thought process involved in it. The New Testament repeatedly tells us to think. The writers want us to use our brains. 
We are not amoebas just moving along. We have brains and we are meant to think. We are to consider, count, and regard because faith is an active process. It requires effort. In other words, when we encounter trials, we have a choice. How are we going to regard this experience? James is telling us to think. The other way it can be translated is count, as in count it joy. Add it up. In following Jesus, when we add in all the negatives and the positive, it's going to come out positive. That is how we can count the joys. So the first way we can persevere is to consider it joy. The second way James wants us to persevere is to ask for wisdom. Let's look at James 1.5. If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Remember I said at the beginning, humility is being dependent on God. When you are dependent on God, you ask for help. That's a key part of prayer, asking for help. Prayer is simply recognizing he is God and we are not. James tells us the second choice that leads to perseverance is to ask for wisdom. It's admitting that we do not have all the answers within ourselves. We are dependent on him. It is a choice to be a disciple of Jesus, and it doesn't happen passively. You see, the word here is ask. That's an active word. You have to do it. You have to act by asking. You are not earning, but it is effort. It is a choice. Grace is not opposed to effort. It is opposed to earning. You don't have wisdom because you do not ask. God is waiting for us to ask. But it's always a choice whether to be humble enough to ask. Grace is God acting in my life to accomplish what I cannot accomplish on my own. And James is telling us we have to ask. Let's look at the rest of our passage, starting with verse 6. But when you ask, you must believe and not doubt, because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Such a person is double-minded and unstable in all they do. One commentator said, a double-minded person is one whose devotion to God is less than total. His attention is divided between God and other things. But let's remember it's a work in progress. Let's look again at verse 4. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Salvation is instant. But moving to maturity is a process. My favorite prayer acknowledging the process is Mark 9.24. I believe, help my unbelief. Jesus knows where we are. 
And the beautiful thing is that in this Mark passage, Jesus answers this man's prayer. This I believe help my unbelief prayer. So beautiful. Now let's be clear. The father in Mark 9.24 comes to find Jesus. He acts. He asks. He is all in. He is in front of the crowd and he is all in. He is still moving to maturity, but he is not double-minded. I believe, help my unbelief, is a valid prayer coming from a sincere heart. We've talked about a lot, so let's review. Our question from the beginning, what do you do when you feel like giving up? James' answer, persevere. How do we persevere? James gives us two actions to take. Count it joy and ask for wisdom so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, you are so good to us. You are so good to tell us the truth about this life. Thank you for the wisdom of James. Help us persevere in anticipation of what you are going to do in our life, in our story, in the lives of those we love. That is the joy you want to fill us with, Lord, the anticipation of what you are going to do. And so, Lord, we ask you to fill us with overflowing, with this kind of joy of what you're going to do in our stories. Give us wisdom, God, on what to do next. We love you, Lord. And as I always pray, may we be quick to give you praise for every good thing. Amen.